My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and um, we're, we're in Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, go there and uh, tell you we've been looking at this letter for the last uh, couple of months, and uh, next week we'll take a break from it, but then pick up after Easter, and we'll pick up after Easter, and it is... Um, some of the most well-known and some of the most misunderstood uh, passages in all of Ephesians as we talk about marriage and parenting and work and the armor of God. And so we'll have this great opportunity after Easter to spend several weeks unpacking some of the, um, some of the most loved biblical truths uh, that Paul wrote. And so I, I want you to plan on joining us then. Um, Here's what I, this is, this is the way I want to do it. I want to start by reading Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 15, and I'm going to read to verse 21, realizing that in many ways this passage um, is not separate from what comes after it. It is crucial to what comes after it. So you will hear these verses again in a couple of weeks, but I want us to focus in on chapter 5, verses 15 through 21, and this is how Paul writes it. This is what he says. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of, the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray you would take the words that you inspired, you revealed, you superintended the Apostle Paul to write, and then, Father, for all these centuries you've preserved this word. We believe it's living and it's active and it's sharper than a two-edged sword and has the ability, even this morning, to, to get down into the depths of who we are, Father, to sift us. And so I pray that your Spirit would have His way with us this morning as we study your Word. Guard my heart and guard my mouth to speak that which accords with what your word is. And Father, for everything else, would it burn up before, before it's heard or remembered? So we give this time to you, and we do this the only way we can, and that is in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, today... In uh, church history, what we usually observe on this Sunday before Easter Sunday, we call it Palm Sunday. And in 
We do that in remembrance of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's the last week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry, if you will. And he has taken his disciples to Jerusalem. And although he's told his disciples that when he gets there, this is what's going to happen. They're going to um, arrest me. They're going to beat me and mock me and put me on trial. And then they're going to nail me to a cross. I'm going to die, but three days later I'll be raised again. The resurrection. Well, three times during this journey to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem for the last time in his ministry, he had been telling the disciples, and the disciples didn't fully understand what it was that he was telling them. In fact, if you were to follow those three uh, foretellings in Mark's gospel, you find the first one is met with Peter taking Jesus aside and saying, hey, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not the plan. To which... Uh, Jesus responds to Peter, the famous words everyone wants to hear, get behind me, Satan. Well, the next time he tells them, and then they leave for a long walk, and Jesus is walking ahead, the disciples are behind him, and the disciples, they're, you know, they're grumbling, you know, you can tell they're arguing, and Jesus says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And it turns out they had been talking about who amongst them was going to be the greatest in the kingdom? I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to to die on a cross. I'm going to be buried in a grave and then resurrected three days later. And these guys find that as an occasion to argue amongst themselves who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Well, the last one's actually my favorite. It's Jesus tells them and then James and John see it as an opportunity to come to Jesus privately, and they say, Jesus, we, we got this question we want to ask you. In fact, one of the gospels says their mom came with them, which is awesome. <laughs> Jesus said, well, so, okay, so what do you want? So, well, yeah, 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 all the dying and the burying and the resurrecting stuff. But, um, but in the kingdom, this is what we're really concerned about. When you're on the throne, could, could we sit at your right and your left hand? It's interesting that as Jesus had foretold what was going to happen coming into Jerusalem, the disciples had such a difficult time hearing and seeing what Jesus was doing because they were so focused on themselves. Even as Jesus enters Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday to the crowd shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right out of Psalm 118. And it was to fulfill Scripture, the king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt, right out of Zechariah 9.9. But John's quick to say, because he was there and he was one of them, The disciples didn't understand these things. But when Jesus was glorified, that's when they remembered. You see, what Jesus does on this Palm Sunday is he exposes humanity. The contrast between what the people wanted from Jesus, what they wanted Jesus to do for them, and contrasted with what 
Jesus came to do for the people. That's what we remember on Palm Sunday. And, and the contrast exists in every one of our hearts. What we want from Jesus and what Jesus wants for us. Well, Paul's talking about it this morning. He's talking very plainly about what Jesus wants for us. And, and as we hear it this morning, it, it's going it's to come up against what we want from Jesus, what we want from this life, what we want in the next year or five years. It's going to come up and it's going to challenge those things in us that are different from what Jesus wants for us. He's been talking about this second half of Ephesians. You know, the Christian walk. He began in chapter 4, verse 1, we're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Well, we're not to walk in the way of the Gentiles, which is another way to say, don't, you're not supposed to walk the way you were before you were a believer in Christ. In chapter 5, verse 2, we're to walk in love. In chapter 5, verse 8, we're to walk as children of the light. Here he's going to tell us we're to walk as those who are wise. And then in verse 18, that we're to be filled with the Spirit. This is what a, what a Christian life is meant to look like. Look, look with me again in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Look carefully. Here's what the word means. To see, to be aware, to pay close attention. Pay close attention to how you walk. And then he's conscious, not as wise, or not as unwise, but as wise. So wisdom in, in the Bible is, is God's truth that is applied to our life. It, it's that way all over the Bible. Three verses I'll give you of hundreds of verses on wisdom. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7. The beginning of wisdom is this. I, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. The beginning of wisdom is this. What do you think it says? Get wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get it. it it's, this is, and then whatever you get, get insight, which means knowing how to apply that wisdom. One commentator on this says, what it takes is not brains or opportunity, but a decision. Do you want it? Come and get it, the Bible says. Well, Psalm 90, verse 12, it also instructs us with regard to wisdom, and the, the psalmist says, so teach us, to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In other words, think, think on this. The, the shortness of your life. Think about the shortness of your life and the infinite length of the next. 
the shortness of all that is temporal compared to all that is eternal. Pondering our life backwards, if you will. Meaning, what kind of life would you like to look back on when we come to our last breath? Pondering life backwards with the end in mind has a way of purging some of our priorities. Well, the last of the three verses I'll give you, James 1.5, if, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. See, what we find throughout the Bible is the Bible talks about wisdom, this great pro- in fact, Proverbs. Begin chapter 3, go all the way through to almost chapter 10, and it is this It's this beautiful picture of wisdom. But wisdom's not found in the world. It only comes from God. Spiritual insight about things which no human eye has seen or heard or heart has conceived, it can only be revealed by the Spirit of God. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. Wisdom comes not so much from from, uh, thought... as it does from being in communion with God. So James says, pray, ask for it. God gives it generously, without condition. He doesn't bargain for it. He doesn't withhold it. Ask for it. And the reason is, is because he wants us to make the best use of time. Did you notice that in verse 16. The idea here is not clock time. You know, it's not the kind of time you tell from your watch. What he's talking about is kingdom time. Kingdom opportunities is what he means. Make the best of the opportunities. Those openings or opportunities that come at inconvenient moments... A friend wants to talk, child has a problem, a chance shows up to help somebody in need. Paul encourages us to, to, to make the most of all the opportunities, to make the best use of our time. Our lives have to become as uncluttered as possible so we can respond to what presents itself around us. An uncluttered life. You know, the reality is is that opportunities get squeezed out of our life all the time by unnecessary busyness. Cluttered priorities, over-demanding schedules all of the many apps that you have downloaded on your phone. I just wonder, I mean, listen, I'm not, I'm not saying this at you. I'm sure you, every one of you, just knocking it out of the park here, right? So I'll talk to me for a minute. I wonder how many opportunities I've missed because, you know, I had a minute, I was sitting there somewhere, wherever it was, And instead of even 
looking at or noticing anyone that was around me, I decided, well, I'm going to open up my app, I'm going to look here, I'm going to fly through Twitter, because that really is the best use of my kingdom time, right? How many opportunities I've missed because of the unnecessary clutter in my life? See, the strategy of the world system, and especially if you're a believer, is to fill every moment you have with what is temporal in order to keep you distracted from what is eternal. The next time you sit down in a waiting room, next time you're outside at a restaurant, you know, just, just waiting to be seated, you know, hear, hear Paul in Robin Williams' voice from Dead Poets Society telling you, seize the day, you know? Seize it. Make the most of it. And he tells us because the days are evil. They're controlled by the one who opposes God and his kingdom and seeks to prevent and thwart every good thing from above. That's what he told us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. We were dead in our trespasses in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air. The Spirit is now working the sons of disobedience. There is an, there is an active force in this world. It seeks to rob you of the opportunities that God would present. Well, I'd like to tell you it's less convicting from here on out in this passage. The truth is it's not. Look at the next verse, verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be foolish. Don't be senseless. Don't lack understanding. The will of the Lord, this is what he wants us to understand. In other words, employ all the capacity that you have to arrive at this. Bring everything you have to bear on understanding God's will. So, a few weeks ago, we looked at chapter 3, and one of the things we said about that is, Paul's talking about the church and this mystery that's been revealed and this, this, this story of redemption that we are caught up in, that God, you know, God planned before the foundations of the world, revealed it in a moment in time in history, and now this is part of all of our story. And we said, until we understand what God's up to in the world, then, it, then we'll never understand what He's up to in our world, in our life. And what God's up to is He's up to lost people being found. He's up to found people maturing. And He's up to those who are maturing, reproducing their life in somebody else. And that's what God's up to for every single person on the face of the earth. And as a believer, you're a new creation. Which, which means you're no longer tied to and entwined with what you can see. Your life's more than the pursuit of the American dream. It's more than 70 or 80 years trying to be comfortable and successful and fulfilled on planet Earth. Your life is eternal. Your life is now caught up in and entwined with His story, His eternal plan. Not only that, Paul had said in Ephesians 2, 10, 
He's already planned for things for you to do. What's the will of God? He's already planned them. Every one of us can, can know and fulfill these particular things that God has planned for us, only for us. And you have a part, a real significant part in the mystery of what God's doing, part of something that's, that's forever. And that's life-changing, and He wants us to, to understand the will of God, which means we have to walk wisely and make the best use of our time so those opportunities that present themselves, we can step into them, realizing that's the will of God. Now, look now what he says in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. There's a parallel passage over in Colossians chapter 3. We, um, the way that he talks about being filled with the Spirit over there, maybe things that are very similar, he says over there, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Being filled with the Spirit is not apart from or something necessarily different from the words of Christ dwelling in you richly. But he starts at the contrast here in Ephesians is don't be drunk with wine. This would have been particularly um, significant for the Ephesians. This would have been part of the temple worship and um, the, the general, uh, you know, carousing of the day that would have happened in Ephesus. And so, you know, don't lose faculty. It's a loss of faculty. The loss of control of yourself and to be impaired. Debauchery is the it describes things that are wasteful or, you know, the picture of the, of the prodigal son at his lowest moment. Don't be controlled with wine. Yesterday, my daughter sent me a YouTube video to watch. In YouTube... YouTube's an evil place. All of a sudden, you watch one thing, and it has five other things that you have to watch, and three hours later, you realize, what in the world have I been doing for three hours? But I started, I, I got from, from one thing to another thing to, here are videos that... Um, uh, terrible parents took of their children under anesthesia after they got their wisdom teeth out. I think, man, that's, that's a savage parent right there, all right? And it was these kids who, you know, they'd never been in anesthesia before. They're coming out of it. They got their wisdom teeth taken out, you know, and, they're, and it's hilarious. I mean, you know, one person's like, they, where's my tongue? It's in your mouth. No, no, it's not in my mouth. And, and all, I mean, so sorry for the afternoon that you just lost when you go look for all that. But don't be controlled by something else. Instead, be controlled by the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, being filled with the Spirit isn't something you can pretend. 
And much is said about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, the sealing of the Spirit, the convicting of the Spirit. We're not commanded to appropriate those things. You're never called to be indwelled by the Spirit. The moment that you're saved, you're indwelt by the Spirit forever, permanently, you know, amen. You never undwelt by the Holy Spirit once the Spirit comes. This is not saying be indwelt or um, uh, be sealed. The Holy Spirit does that at the moment of salvation. But Paul, he's commanding us to be filled. Filled in this context, it means to, to take full possession of, that we're, we're coming to, we're appropriating the Spirit's ministry in our life where the Spirit takes full possession of us. One commentator, he said it this way, with the indwelling, each Christian has all of the Spirit. The moment of salvation, the Spirit comes and dwells you. You have all of the Spirit there. The command to be filled by the Spirit enables the Spirit to have all of the believer. You already have all of the Spirit. Being filled is now Submitting your life, yielding your life to the Spirit so the Spirit has all of you. We'll never have more of the Spirit than we already have from the time of salvation. On the other hand, the Spirit might have more of the believer. Be able to more perfectly manifest in you the life and character of Christ. It's, it's like the psalmist cries out as a deer pants for flowing streams, flowing waters, so my soul pants for you, O Lord. It's a soul that thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And when you contrast that with what happens when you're drunk with wine under its influence, then you're speaking about that which has you under its control, or in the case of the Spirit, under His control. And then, Paul moves into some of the most interesting verses, I think, in, in this chapter. And, and these, are, these are what it looks like when we're filled with the Spirit. These are the outcomes of being filled with the Spirit. And the first of those is that we would dress, address one another. Verse 19 in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So, on the one hand, he's speaking of this, so this is clear. This, this is not, this communication is clear, it's understandable, it's not unknown speech or unknown tongues. That's not what he's talking about there. It is in the context that we would be ministering to each other as we're worshiping Christ. Paul has in mind here this overflow of being filled with the Spirit. What does the overflow produce? And what, what, you know, what, what flows out of the overflow? The, the backdrop is this culture in, in Ephesus. They, they were known for false teachers, man-made traditions, religious rituals. And the false teachers, they would try to harmonize 
what they were saying with God's Word. And the Spirit of God, though, always points us to Christ, always exalts Christ in our life. The Spirit of God leads us in the way of truth and understanding of God's Word. And so Paul's addressing the body here. It's corporate instruction. And there's this relationship of our knowledge with God's Word and being filled with the Spirit and then expression of worship in songs. And one of the ways that we teach ourselves and we teach each other is through the singing of the Word of God, the singing of theology, and the singing of the praise of God. It's one of the ways in 1 Corinthians 14 that we build each other up. So, what does it mean to address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? Does it mean I'm supposed to show up in Sunday morning? Oh, Brother Drew, how are you doing? And he'd say, just fine. That's good to hear. I could do that all day, actually. That's not what he's talking about. Here's what he's talking about. So, so let me tell you, so when you talk about Psalms, he's talking about literally the Psalms, the Word of God. And psalm, the actual word, means to be accompanied with string instruments. It's, a, it's you know, the beginning of the psalms, the super, subscripts, uh, for the choir director. It's what the people of God sang as they gathered or as they traveled to Jerusalem. You know, um, for the Passover, there's a whole series of psalms they sang for that. When you talk about hymns, you're, you're talking about theology about God. We're, we're to sing theology. Who does God say He is? Who are we? We're to sing that. And spiritual songs. This is thanksgiving to God, songs of joy and praise. You could think testimony. This is our testimony. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. That's exactly what it is. And that we'd come together and we'd sing together. You know, in unity, we'd sing the same thing about who God is to each other as we worship God. Believers, we, listen, we learn and rejoice in the character and purpose of God and the application of our lives. Theologies learned and remembered and passed on through what we sing. I promise you today, it is more likely you will leave here with a tune on your lips, something we sing. You'll say, I just love that song, and you find yourself singing it. After. I can promise you, it won't be 3.30 this afternoon after you wake up with your nap and you call out to your wife. Wasn't that great what Ross said? And then you like you quote something I say. You're not doing that. <laughs> I'm not doing that. What we learned 
about God. Our theology is so, so much transmitted through what we sing. Listen to what Martin Luther, so Martin Luther set the world on fire during the Reformation. You know what he was all about? He was all about the Word of God, putting the the Word of God into the language of the people so that every believer, every single person had access to the Word of God. And yet, Martin Luther said this about singing. He said, next to the Word of God, music deserves the highest praise. And then I love this. Luther can get away with this in the 16th century. He says, I have no use for cranks who despise music. A person who does not regard music as a, as a marvelous creation of God must be a clodhopper. Indeed, he doesn't even deserve to be called a human being. Because music is a gift from God. Here's what Luther believed. Music drives away the devil, makes people joyful. They forget thereby all wrath, unchastity, arrogance, and the like. Next, after theology, I give music the highest place and the greatest honor. He says, as long as we live, there is never enough singing. Luther wrote hundreds of hymns for the church. Probably the one we know the best, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does not seek, does seek to work as well. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not as equal. But a mighty fortress is our God. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that you see about the Bible, one of the most amazing scenes. You catch a glimpse of it in Isaiah 6. You see it in Revelation. And it's a scene around the throne room, and you've got these four angels. And the way that these angels are described are incredible. They've got got six wings, and they've got eyes all over their body. And one looks like a, a lion, the other looks like an eagle. They're magnificent, powerful creatures, these angels. And you think, what? They must have a really important purpose in God's creation, and they do. They stand at the throne, and night and day, and day and night, over and over and over again, forever, they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They are forever the choir at the throne. One that we're caught up and meant to join with. Listen, I, I don't know what your view is about what it is we do when we come together on Sunday mornings. But the reason we sing, the reason we come and 
sing. We sing to one another. We sing to the Lord. We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs because it, it builds us up. It helps us to walk as wise. It helps us to make the most of, our, of, of the time, the opportunities that we have. It helps us to, to know and to remember the will of God. It chases away all of those things that are competing in our life, and we're, we remember. And so, if, if it's not something you value, ask the Lord to help you value that. Help you have a song in your heart. It's good for us. This is part of what it means to be a believer. Well, two other things. He talks about giving thanks. This is literally Eucharist. It's a part of giving thanks is it's the very thing we do when we talk about the Lord's Supper, the, the Eucharist, the, the, the bread and the wine as we remember what it is that God has done, a thankfulness, a heart of gratitude. It's where we're not comparing our lives with each other, compare, Comparison kills the contentment in our lives. It creates this unhappiness. We're coming thankful for all we have, thankful for what God's done in our life, thankful for what God's done in the lives of those around us. You know, gratitude's this forgotten discipline that we so desperately need. And then submitting to one another. This verb, submitting, it actually is going to carry over into the next bit. It, it's the controlling verb of the whole rest of chapter 5. Submission, submitting to one another based on the reverence of God. God wants to spare us pain. He wants to, to give us a way to live with one another, and that is to submit to one another, cheering for one another, empowering each other, celebrating each other's success. And yet it doesn't come naturally. Scripture has to remind us of that all the time. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord. Exaltation comes after humility. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. We descend into greatness in the presence of each other. Joyful, thankful, submitting to, to one another. All these are signs, evidence of a life filled with the Spirit. And all of this, he says at the end of verse 20, out of reverence for the name of Christ, out of reverence for Christ, which speaks to His authority in our life. You know, Palm Sunday. We call it the beginning of the Passion Week, the Passion of Jesus. Jesus enters into Jerusalem, submitted to the will of God, the, the will, it seems, of those who would seek to destroy Him. He submits to his creation, the creation that has rebelled against him. And he does this out of love. He does this for our good and for, I, and for God's glory. If Christ doesn't submit to the cross, we have no hope. 
with a word. He could have commanded legions of angels who no doubt set on the ready to come and end all of this. Yet he says, my, not my will, but your will, Father. Paul sums it up in what is probably, by the way, a hymn, theology, that the church sang in Philippians chapter 2. And we'll close this way. He, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Are you filled with the Spirit? Are you, is there music in your soul? Is there thankfulness and praise on your lips? Is, is there submission in our lives? Let's go to the Lord and ask Him to do what only he can do but these very things that Paul has commanded. If you would, bow your heads. Father, I pray that you this morning would answer every prayer for wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask for it. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And Father, we need it, we want it. We want to walk in wisdom. We want to walk as those who are wise. We want to make the most of all the opportunities that come before us, and so we don't want to miss it. Convict us this morning about places that are cluttered in our lives. We'd look up, we'd see who's around us. Father, we'd live expectantly that you, you've works for us to do today. You already wrote them. You've planned them. Father, I pray that we not miss those opportunities. Father, we'd understand your will. And we'd be filled with your Spirit. We'd be quick to confess our sin and those things that grieve the Spirit of God cause our fellowship with you to suffer, that we'd, we'd confess that and 
trust that you forgive that and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Father, we, we want to yield ourselves to your Spirit, that he would have more of us than even now. Father, overflowing and a heart of praise and gratitude that comes as we richly dwell in your Word and We'd be people that are thankful. Father, the people that submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. We look for opportunities to give our lives away to each other. And Father, even as we say that and read it and pray it and mean it, only you can do that in our hearts. And I pray this morning you would have your way with each of us. We ask this the only way we can in the name of your Son, Jesus, who is our Savior, and by the power of your Spirit.